0: High Noon. This, this. is News Talk.
1: You are listening to High Noon here on News Talk in Kodahee standing in today and what do we have coming up? Of course we are going to be crossing live to Las Vegas during the show uh, to get the latest on that shooting, the worst shooting mass shooting in US history over 50 people confirmed dead and over 200 injured so far and as Andrea said there uh, the shooter of course has been named as Stephen Paddock a 64 year old man from Mesquite in Nevada other people as well being looked for a, a woman a, a, b- has been identified as a person of interest as well we will have the latest on that as I said throughout the show as well we're going to be crossing uh, to Catalonia in the next few minutes uh, the region and I suppose and the rest of Spain dealing with the fallout from yesterday's referendum. Huge question marks over the implications and consequences of that vote and we will endeavour to answer some of those. And don't say that we dodge the... The big issues here in high noon because Peter Cosgrove of CPL Recruitment is going to be joining me in studio to tell us how to deal with a smelly work colleague when you get that waft of bo. How do you how do you approach it? Just kind of spray deodorant in their direction? Do you tell them? Do you just ignore it and hope it goes away? Uh, Connor Pope is also going to be here to talk about Ireland's most iconic brands. Uh, what do you think they are actually? I'd be interested to hear before Connor gets in here what should be in the list. He'll be revealing uh, the results of their survey. Should it be Guinness, Tato, Barry's Tea, something else? Let us know five three one zero six is the text number that'll cost you 30 cent or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cudahy. Uh, Child safety belts, super unions and getting enough sleep are all coming up as well before the end of the show. Before we get to any of that though and before we cross to Catalonia, um, there was a story I spotted this morning and I wanted to mention it briefly. It's from the UK And it's uh, Whole Foods, this organic food store in London. Uh, They found themselves at the centre of some attention, negative attention, really, after placing an ad on their tills. And the ad read, giving money or food to people outside our store is encouraging theft, aggressive behaviour and substance abuse. So don't give money to people outside the shop. That's what they were saying. Of course, what they mean is don't give money to homeless people outside the shop. You know, if you're just coming in to get a cup of coffee or whatever it is on your way to work. You're not looking for money outside the store. Um, And of course, then, what that really means is, uh, and what they wanted to say, but what they tried to avoid saying specifically was, we don't want homeless people uh, near our organic food store, so don't encourage them. Um, they're basically equating homeless people to pigeons. That's what they're doing. You know, don't feed them, don't encourage them. We don't want them around here. Let them go somewhere else. Um, because, look, I don't believe for a second the sentiments uh, in in their note. You know that this is about substance abuse. For example, you know, there's many things that a business could be doing if it was so concerned about substance abuse. Denying arms to the poor is certainly not among them. Um, it's anti-homelessness, and it betrays two things. It betrays a lack of understanding about the complexities of homelessness and how you deal with it. And the other thing that it betrays actually is worse. Uh, It betrays a lack of human decency. That was what struck me reading it. Like, what's uh, that's what's really offensive about this. Like, where's the empathy in it? Where's the concern for their fellow man that's fallen on hard times? And it reminds me of this whole issue, uh, you know, of defensive architecture. That's, that's what I was uh, sprung to mind reading this as well. You know, these are where you see buildings with, you know, spikes or railings outside to prevent, well, what they say is, you know, loitering or antisocial behaviour. Uh, but what they mean is rough sleeping. You know, that's what they're actually preventing. They accept homelessness as a crisis, but look, it's not a crisis we want on our doorstep. Go sleep somewhere else. You know, that's what they're saying, because, of course, you know, when you're a rough sleeper, you've got an abundance of options. Um, And ultimately, what all of this is, is just a version of nimbyism, which... We're all guilty of nimbyism at different times, uh, to different extents. But this isn't like a road or an apartment block that you don't want built too close to your house. It's about human beings who are living day to day. They're not knowing where they might sleep tonight. Uh, They're not knowing where or what they're going to eat today or how much they'll have to eat. And I suppose some people see that. Their inclination is to reach out and help. Others see that and they turn their noses up, like Whole Foods, the organic store in London. Um, Anyway, that was my thoughts reading this article uh, this morning Uh, maybe you agree with me maybe you don't I'm sure the texts are already coming in saying who's this pinko liberty lefty snowflake uh, on the radio get him off he thinks everybody should get everything for free that's usually what the texts say Um, either way we want to hear from you honestly we do 53106 that'll cost you 30 cent or you can get me on twitter at here in Codigi. Uh, but right now we turn our attention as I said to uh, Catalonia because uh, authorities there have said that 90% of those who voted in the banned independence referendum choose to split from Spain at the weekend TV images showed Spanish police kicking would-be voters and pulling women out of polling stations by their hair and uh, Catalan medical officials as well said 844 people had been hurt in clashes including 33 police joining me on the line in Barcelona is Barcelona resident and journalist Anna Rosa de Escarra-Butler. Anna Rosa, um, tell me this, uh, what what is the atmosphere like in the city this morning?
2: Yeah, hi, good afternoon. Um, To be honest with you, the atmosphere is one of, um, really initially it's one of sadness. It's quite sombre because I think we're all in shock as to how the state of play, how we got to this point. Um, Just speaking to my colleagues that are Catalan, you know, before the weekend, they were enthusiastic about to, you know, they want to go and vote and have a very sort of peaceful encounter. And as uh, well, as we all know, what happened, happened. And it's, uh, I'm almost ashamed as well, because I'm half Spanish. My, my family's from Madrid. But there's also that, that sense of shame that, that this could even happen. Yeah,
1: well, well, was it not expected? I, I was speaking to people last week and they said, look, there may be violence somewhere down the line, but probably not on Sunday. Did, did, did anyone expect this to happen yesterday?
2: No, no. I mean, the thing is, we didn't. But but there's also, you know, the the talk on the street as well is that the, um, the Spanish government just uh, there was a bait that was handed out and they just ate it up, hook line and sinker. Instead of just, you know, uh, accepting that this was happening and just leaving it occur, there was just this this terrible, um, re, you know, this really ridiculous reaction. And and it took everybody. It took everybody. Um, Uh, apart really because we didn't realise that this was going to get to such a So I'm on the street right now that there was such such a terrible clash was going to occur and it's just the violence just those images as you mentioned earlier of these people getting dragged I mean I'm really lost for words hence the Hence my poor description of it all, because I just didn't see this happening. I don't think anybody did.
1: Yeah, how widespread was that that, that violence? Because a lot of us would have seen the images on social media, particularly yesterday, of people, as I said, getting pulled out of voting booths and uh, and kind of masked uh, police officers, you know, ripping the the, 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 uh, the sealed boxes away from, from, from people, from invigilators. How widespread was that? Was there many parts of Catalonia where voting just carried on peacefully?
2: Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, there were parts, especially in the city centre, there were parts that were very peaceful because, um, you know, we're on a group chat with the Barcelona City FM, other, with all the other DJs, and there were areas that were very peaceful, you know, that it was very easy. It was a quick uh, transition, but unfortunately the images that, that have spread across the world are the ones that that really were the ones that went to the extreme of that. Um, now, there are also images of, of people being able to vote in different sections as well. You know, there was, I suppose there was a, like a running, to lighten the mood a bit, there were people, there was a the possibility for you to be able to vote in a few different uh, constituencies as well. So therefore, in terms of how accurate a referendum, I'm not saying that the numbers aren't um, correct and it's not within the same ballpark, but, you know, there is that element, too, that people were able to kind of maybe vote a few extra times should want to
1: as well. Vote early and vote often could have been applied lit- bit, literally yeah. in uh, Catalonia yesterday. W- w- was there a sense, and maybe it's a bit too early to, to tell this yet, but that I suppose that such a crackdown, a violent crackdown might actually backfire that it could have the opposite effect the Spanish authorities had hoped?
2: I, To be honest with you, I'm not too sure what the psychology behind all of it was because like I said to you, I'm baffled. There is a sense of Sadness and a sense of wonder, as in how this happened. I'm not too sure who in the on the top tiers of authority thought that this would actually work. I'm not, you know, surely history should teach us all a lesson that once you, when you try and suppress a voice, when you try and suppress the people's voice, that if anything, if people were on the on the fence regarding which side to choose, I think definitely there was. Um, One was pushed into a a very clear ideology after yesterday. I think people who were thinking, well, maybe we would do well as a united country, I think yesterday really has backfired in that sense, because I think, why would you want to be part of a system that would do that under the name of democracy, you know? I mean, and again, I'm not a politician. I'm just a a person living here. And that's the the sentiment, really, that's uh, occurring.
1: Yeah, and there are reports uh, just in the last few minutes here as well that our own Taoiseach Leo Radker has warned the Spanish government that violence like this against civilians uh, could lead uh, to radicalisation. Um, and, and a lot of people as well uh, echoing those comments over the last 12 hours, certainly. Uh, what happens now, though, in terms of, obviously, that the... the, the the results are essentially in this ninety percent vote in favor, even though as you said some question marks over people maybe be voting in in a number of different polling stations and i'm
2: not I'm not making that up. I mean you all you have to do is go to social media and and, and research it yourself so it's not I'm not a uh, you know advocating or, or playing devil's advocate. It's just what the uh, what the situation was so so, um, what, so what
1: what happens now? what's the process from this point? This
2: we're not too sure i mean obviously um theoretically the, it would be to present the these numbers to the Spanish government, and to really just say, like, look, independence is what the people want now, and to proclaim independence, whether now this is going to be recognized. I'm just watching my colleagues here. They know that I'm talking to, you, to your fine selves here on the station. Um, I mean, in theory, that would be to present the numbers and to thus have a discussion with the Spanish government. But as we all know, nothing has gone really um, according to plan or how one would think uh, these situations should be um, conducted. So what happens now, unless they, they really want to um, stick to their ground and to be defiant, no, this separation is not going to occur. The outcome, though, there's going to be a lot of division and there's going to be a lot of inner anger that's going to happen because a lot of people, we, you know, there are a lot of Spaniards that live here as well that are happy to be living in Catalonia and not a united Spain. And that's the problem. I think that's the issue now. What's going to happen from now on is i suppose the sense of humanity within us all that are living in this in this region
1: so th- there's not anyway. there's not a sense amongst the uh, pro independence politicians in Catalonia that that uh, independence should now be inevitable like uh, I suppose what I'm I taking it, is, is. It, is there it, is, is
2: th- that there is that okay. sentiment that it is ine- inevitable now how the means and But that this is just a them,
1: uh, this is just a kind of a launch pad to start those processes as opposed to being the end of a process
2: Well exactly I mean if anything this is a launch as you said um it's not going to there won't be any silencing after this I mean a veritable box Of of, of political Pandora-esque issues has been opened and there's a lot of underlying current themes that have just been exposed and that's what's happening now. So this is not the end of it. It's really only just really started a a very aggressive conversation. Unfortunately, it didn't have to be that aggressive. It could have been done under much more peaceful means. But I mean, tomorrow there's a strike already, so um, people in Catalonia are striking tomorrow in response to what's happening today. So uh, there's, as you can see, there's already a domino
1: effect. Yeah, I was about to ask that. You know, obviously, as yeah. we said, we, had the, we the referendum and the results, and uh, from a political point of view, the, 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 the argument that this is a launchpad for actually discussing this issue maturely, but there on the ground are the, the, the strikes tomorrow. How widespread are those strikes? Who is striking? Is it public service? Is it everyone?
2: It's, it's public services, yeah, public services and businesses. Um, I currently work with a, a theatre company that does uh, English theatre as well to schools so obviously in, um, um, out of camaraderie as well we're, we're striking too all the schools are shutting down as well um, I, I believe that's, that's the news that we've been given all the schools are shutting down public services uh, Catalonia is at a standstill tomorrow as a response it, to Is that an this.
1: indefinite strike or a one day thing?
2: Well, as, as far as we know it's one day one day but then again, who knows, it might, it might be extended. But for now, it's definitely 24 hours.
1: And then in terms of the possibilities that there could be any other flare-ups of violence, are there rallies or anything planned over the next uh, few well, days to, I suppose, a to question, celebrate the result?
2: Well, the thing is, um, tomorrow, I know there will be peaceful protests happening. How peaceful they remain, I hope so, because I'd like to go out to myself and, and show my support. Um, but again, I suppose, watch this space. It's, uh, there are protests for tomorrow, albeit hopefully peaceful as well.
1: In, in in terms of the Spanish government and uh, uh, Prime Minister Rajoy, uh, could he can he survive this? Is is it likely to have any ne- ne- negative impact on him, or no impact?
2: Like I said, I mean, I'm not um, I'm not a politician, but at the same time, I think common sense should dictate. And really, it would be very difficult to to survive this. And if he does, I think it would be by the skin of his teeth because there is just a lot of. I, I, it's just purely from from a way of handling and. Um, comp- one's composure and how how one has dealt with this, and it's just there it hasn't been it's been a very unelegant way of uh, of dealing with the whole situation and um and and should he stay in it would raise a lot of questions as well
1: all right so and
2: on the ground looking and observing this you know
1: all right, Ana Rosa de Isagiri Butler, journalist in Barcelona and radio presenter with Barcelona City FM. Thanks very much for speaking to us. Uh, before we go to a break, loads of people getting in touch um, about uh, that shop in uh, Whole Foods in London uh, that basically had a sign in their till saying don't give money to anyone outside the shop uh, because it just, it attracts them really. That's not what they said. They said it's a, it, it it encourages uh Thievery and thuggery And antisocial behaviour And substance abuse As Someone said That shop is paying more Than its fair share in rates Stop being so populist No one wants to be hassled Going in and out of shops It hurts Businesses, um, Yeah, I'm sure it probably does hurt the business. That's probably why they did it. I don't think I was being populist. That is my honest assessment of that article and when I read it. Uh, someone else says, um, I agree with you with what you said, Read the unwholesome attitude of the organic store. Thanks for saying it. The stores in Dublin, too, who put up sprinklers on their doorways to rain on the homeless. Another example of that thug attitude. And then another person says... Why do you assume the people outside the shop are homeless? I had been giving a couple of euro to a man sitting outside my local spa for years until the shop owner said he felt obliged to tell me that the man is dropped and collected there every day by a taxi. Um, look, I'm sure there are outliers like that. I don't think uh, most people on the street who you see, like with a cup in front of them, are getting dropped off and collected uh, by taxis to go home to their mansion with all the money they're getting uh, from that. D in Dublin, though, says fifty cents in a cup doesn't do anything except to give a sense of superior superiority to the donor. If people really care, contacting the local TD, the charity organisation, or performing a general Good deed is what is required. Uh, finally, Ed says, Kieran, we all empathise with the homeless, but it's hard enough for small business owners without having someone outside scaring away the customers. Keep those texts coming in, 53106, that costs you 30 cents, or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cudahy. We'll be back in a moment.
0: Hi, noon. This, this is News Talk.
1: You're very welcome back to High Noon. Kieran Cotter, standing in today. 53106 is the text number. I'm amazed at the amount of texts coming in. Uh, Really, I suppose, siding with the owners of this Whole Foods store, this organic food store in London, against homeless people, as I'd see it. Um, You know, saying essentially that, look, they're trying to run a business, they're trying to turn a profit, you know, give them a break. You know, they don't want these beggars outside their door scaring away customers is how people are putting it. Um, You know... I accept that it probably isn't good for their business and I'm sure there maybe are people who don't go in if there's uh, people at the door. But I mean... it it doesn't count as charity if it doesn't cost you anything, you know? Like, is there not a charitable sense in all of us that means like in the midst of a homeless crisis and they have a homeless crisis in London as well that you would help people, you would empathise with people, that you wouldn't say, no, don't feed the pigeons because we don't want them around here because that's essentially what they're saying. I'm with Aoife uh, who says that it's all too too easy, she says, uh, to fall into homelessness, remarkably easy. We'd all do well to remember that and look after our fellow man Uh, Mark makes the point that Whole Foods isn't a small business anyway it's a multinational corporation that's got no business telling people what to do with their money while Sheila says I disagree with your comments Kieran, about beggars outside shops I much prefer to give money to the Simon community than to an individual holding a cup I live in the inner city and often have overheard beggars talking about going tapping or changing into their tapping clothes for a certain number of beggars this is a job charities are the best way to help homeless people and addicts in my opinion Sheila, you might be absolutely right. Charities possibly and arguably are better than giving people money directly. I suppose I'm with Mark, Whole Foods of No Business, telling me what to do with my money. I can do what I want outside their shop with my money. Also the idea that, you know, people are out there changing into their begging clothes I'm not saying it doesn't happen like that guy who says you know a guy outside his spa was getting a taxi there to beg outside the shop but it, it kind of that smacks of that argument people say that you know there's all these people out there coining it on social welfare you know what I mean that of course there's people who game the system there's people who game every system but that doesn't mean that the overwhelming majority of people on social welfare find it difficult to get by and the overwhelming majority of people you see sleeping rough on the streets or begging are not there by choice Uh, despite what you might have seen, Sheila. 53106 is the text number. Uh, Keep those texts coming. They'll cost you 30 cents. You can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cudahy. But right now, as we come up to 25 minutes past 12 here in high noon, uh, we want to ask ourselves a really important question, one of the great questions facing society. How do you deal with a smelly colleague? Peter Cosgrove, Director of CPL Recruitment, is here with me in studio. Uh, Peter, it's a delicate subject. It's one... we often talk about it here, actually, in Newstalk. Maybe we have an abundance of smelly colleagues or something.
3: Yeah, I'm uh, wondering, if you got me in here for a reason, Kieran. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I look, it's a really small thing, but like a lot of these things, uh, if you look at any workplace, actually most of the things that get people annoyed or exercise are actually really small things. Um, and this is probably a very difficult one because there's no way around it. You do need to tackle it, and it is an awkward conversation. Yeah. Is the way to tackle it uh, directly or indirectly? Uh, look, my view is you've got to be direct. Um, so there's a, simp- a few simple things you can do to at least make this a bit easier. Firstly, do it at the end of the day. Uh, if you've given someone feedback in the morning and then they have to sit the rest of the day, I mean, oh, yeah. like, think how awful that would be. So it, it, that sounds obvious, but do it at the end of the day. Let them go home afterwards. So hopefully if it does go well, at least they're gone. Um, I think you have to be direct. Um, but, you know, the, you know, I went online just to see what other people were saying rather than just my own view. And some people have some terrible things like they say, oh, you're hygiene impaired or something. Like, you're not hygiene impaired, <laughs> you know? So don't, don't gloss over it. Just say, look, look, I'm really sorry, this is a really awkward conversation, but I have to say it to you. Um, I've noticed. And make sure you do notice it. Don't just take everybody else's word on it or someone else's word on it. You know, that there is a discernible odor, we need to talk about it, you know, and leave a silence. Let them then hopefully explain what it is. Now, some of them will just give you some stream of invective and go, How dare you? And that can happen, because even when someone highlights something that is completely correct about us, it doesn't mean we either agree with it or are happy that they noticed it. But the big thing is, if you don't mention it, it's not just about this person. It's about everyone else in the office. It's about the fact that if you're the manager, it is your job to actually manage everything. And that's, you know, that is a challenge.
1: I was going to say that, like, if it's your peer in, in the office, it's someone who's on the same level uh, as you, are you better off go to the manager and say, look, this is an issue for me and such, you
3: know a few of us sitting around here. Can you deal with it or or should you deal with it yourself? Uh, I mean, I mean, it's t- yeah, you should. It's tough though. I mean, it feels like, oh, thanks very much. But that is their job. If you're the manager, you're managing the team. It's the welfare of the team, it's the culture of the team. It's to make sure everybody's, you know, working at their best, you cannot be at your optimum or best if you feel that you're frustrated every day or every hour or depending on where you're sitting. So I think it is the manager's job, and it is up to you to tell them. Yes. <laughs> Do You you
1: definitely don't then kind of do things like you know light a scented candle around them or leave cans of deodorant on the desk or things that I've seen happen in New Stock down
3: through the years. Yeah, no, <laughs> you will see that that will happen if you don't mention it. So when people say things like, um, I don't know, let's just not communicate it, let's just kind of dance around it, that's what will happen and that's a bit more humiliating. I mean, the, the reality about this situation is it could be happening. If someone's been in your organisation a long time and it's only beginning to happen, that's nearly more strange than if it's somebody new and you've hired them and you didn't know this. But you have to re- realize if at least you care about the person and you show some empathy and you realize there might be an underlying concern there might be a medical issue we don't know it's not up to you to solve this but it's up to you to solve the overall workplace issue so this is never going to be an easy conversation but if you deal with directly you deal with a bit of empathy you will get through it you couldn't find yourself as an employer in any legal hot water could you by bringing
1: up uh, someone's
3: odour you could if you decided to mention it in a very judgmental way and go, you stink you, you know this is a disgrace how dare you what is wrong with you and you actually went down that line and that could be seen as bullying or some somewhat harassment but when you say I've noticed or it has been brought to my attention so it's back to the same point you've always got to be careful when you do this how you say this if the person gets emotional that you stay calm because they probably will get emotional so it's kind of analysing all the things that you think would happen if somebody immediately turned around to you and said Peter you've got really bad breath did you know that and the first thing you think of, if someone just said that to you and didn't give you any comment about it yeah. you're probably going to get upset about it so at least understand that the other person is probably not Going to go. Thanks very much for mentioning this. I really appreciate it. I'm going to go home now and deal with it. That's probably not going to happen. What do you do if they don't do anything about mm-hmm. it? Well, look, you have to actually highlight that there's business guidelines around and there will be all contracts. No, nobody really reads the 20 pages of our contract, but on page 15 <laughs> no. or 16 okay. or 17, there'll be something about personal grooming or hygiene or it'll be in some code of conduct. And if okay. there isn't, somebody will create it fairly quickly if that's the case because there needs to be. So yeah. it is a business guideline. It is business just like the way you dress, the way you comport yourself. There are certain things that you have to do in the workplace. So you can mention it that this isn't about me. This is a workplace issue.
1: I'm conscious that when, when, when I often I hear this talked about, it's from the point of view of people who have a colleague who who's, uh, who has these issues, what if you're that person themselves? You know, and I suppose you've already kind of touched on how to deal with it. Like, you obviously, I suppose, the natural reaction is is a bit of anger and maybe to kind of lash back a bit. But uh, you know, how do you, God, how do you go back into the office the next day? It must be very difficult.
3: Yeah, uh, most things blow over. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example that when I worked in the UK, I actually had to give some of this feedback, and it was a South African guy. And actually, the reality that we found it afterwards that he was going to the gym in the morning, and he didn't have time to shower, and he was going straight in. Which sounds crazy that someone would do that. Yeah, but that's what he was doing. So literally, it was a really obvious fix in terms of you either need to get to the gym earlier, or you can't go to the gym, but this isn't acceptable. Now, it doesn't always work out that cleanly, and it was still an awful conversation that I was thinking. How, how did he react in this? The spot? Hmm? How did he react? On honest, on the he actually react. And he was a kind of big enough South African guy. He actually was just really embarrassed. Yeah. so I, w- I was expecting you know very emotional but it wasn't that way and it was very quick that this was the reason and it was more of a time issue than anything else so I think you ha- you can't work out how to react but if it's you I mean there are lots of things you can do and to be honest the internet's your friend here. there's a million articles online about what you can do in these situations Yeah because
1: I assume well in that case maybe he, that South African had an inkling that there might have been a problem you know most people if you're going to the gym and working up a sweat yeah. and just lashing on the suit after I suppose this in the back of your head this could <laughs> this might not work long term but other people will be totally unaware of this like yeah. it will completely catch them off guard wouldn't it
3: yeah and what people are amazed is that they are catching them off guard and I think people always talk: we've got a part of our personality that other people see that we don't see yeah There's a famous thing called the Johari window it's a bit that's hidden to you not hidden to anyone else so the fact that it's hidden to us and no one else knows about it it's why people have 360 degree feedback and we get this stuff go how dare you say that about me but then four people said about you and I was oh my god maybe I need to rethink what I yeah. say or how I say things, because we never really believe it when people give us this feedback. We go, oh, they just have a gripe or it's their fault. But when a n- number of people do it. So you have to expect that for certain people won't actually understand this. And there could be many reasons why this is the case.
1: What if the person... This is a text that's actually come in. What if the person... <laughs> maybe this is born out of personal experience, if they're your supervisor or they're your boss. Yeah,
3: it's very difficult. If they're your supervisor, you need to go to their supervisor. There's no two ways about it. It's the only thing you can do. Now, I'm guaranteeing you that so many supervisors will just go, I just do not want to deal with the issue. So you have to bring it into different terms. If you don't deal with this issue, people are going to leave the organisation and it's really difficult to find good people. So make it in their interest, unfortunately, because it's got to be in their interest. Otherwise, they won't want to have this horribly difficult conversation.
1: Yeah, what about, because uh, this is something as well that uh, annoys me a little bit, the smell of tobacco from from colleagues. You know, it's not BO. They're entitled to a break. You know, I'm sure maybe it's part of the, whatever the the practice is in the company, they can have a cigarette break. Uh, But then they come back and they reek of cigarettes.
3: Yeah, look, it's tricky that that same person, you know, could say, yeah, but like, you know, I see you putting your, you know, egg salad in and I hate the smell of egg or, you know, you hear people putting some food in the microwave. In the microwave yeah. Oh, so, so the point is, th- where do you start and where do you stop? There is some common decency around that. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, things like smoking, you know. Generally, it goes fairly quickly, as in you get you get, noticed, you get used to it pretty quickly. But I don't think we can get over all of those things. I think this is really about if it's a real issue for the organisation rather than, as I said, eggs in the microwave or tobacco.
1: So is, is the solution, I suppose, obviously at the time, as you said, is dealing with it maturely, dealing with it directly and uh, going to your boss, going to their boss if it is your boss. Uh, but to kind of stave this off is to have those workplace guidelines if they're not in a contract, have a you know that there's a, a manual available or whatever it is.
3: Yeah, we um, all companies generally these days are pretty clear that they'll always have something that they can always go back to because what you don't want to go back to this is my view, this is my opinion, this is what I want you to do. When you can always go back, this is the company guidelines, it just pushes it away from it being me versus you Kieran or some issue we're having. Yeah. So this is a company thing that I'm doing, and I actually don't want to be doing it, and it's a bit awkward, but I have to do this. So it just protects everybody, and you'll find that with most contractual things even things like sick pay where people don't pay sick pay. Many organisations do pay sick pay but they want the ability not to pay it if there's an issue around it. But yeah. they generally do. They'll be a good employer but they like to have the right on their side if something goes wrong.
1: And ultimately the supervisor or the employer out there who's listening and thinks I am not having that conversation with anyone here. Um, it, I'm sure it, it would have a huge impact on productivity and every, everything if, if people are consumed by this out on the floor.
3: Well there will be certain people who can't. The last thing I'll say is outsource it to someone else. Get someone, get your HR manager. I'm sure they'll delight it that you've said it but get someone. Somebody else in authority who can have that conversation, who's caring, but will have the direct conversation.
1: All right, Peter Cosgrove, Director of CPL Recruitment. Peter, thanks very much Thank for you. coming into to us. Uh, we cross live now uh, to Las Vegas. Adam Husley, the Fox News senior correspondent uh, there, joins me now on the line. This, of course, in the wake of that attack, the worst m- mass shooting in US history, over 50 people confirmed dead. Adam, what is the latest there on the ground in Vegas?
4: Uh, yeah, Kieran, it's been as uh, you might imagine a very uh, sad and and, and horrific uh, event uh, here in Vegas. And right now, I think the question is: is you know the, uh, the investigation at this point is is going forward and how this individual got his weapon, how he got oh, how he got the approval. Um, and you know, at that point, uh, you know, at this point, I, I'm standing outside actually the crime scene right now, and there's bodies still inside that haven't been removed. I mean, this was not expected by anybody and it's one of those nights where all of a sudden people are having a concert and they're enjoying their time and they're ending the kind of the summer here in las vegas and and it turns into a horrific scene we've heard stories of people running out and basically throwing bodies into cars and driving off towards the hospital without even waiting for first responders to arrive um and if i know you're being being from dublin i've actually been to dublin and knowing flying in from that air that direction when you fly into vegas if you fly it if you ever been out here, it's the hotel at the end of the runway. You can see the Mandalay as you come into land. Um, so, for your listeners, that's that's kind of the perspective of where this took place. The shooter was on the 36th, uh, 36th floor and shot down uh, into an area that's a, basically a vacant lot uh, across the street from the hotel where this concert was taking place, almost like a little carnival they'd set up. Um, and yeah, go
1: ahead. I was just going to ask about the shooter. Yeah, You mentioned up on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Hotel, Stephen Paddock. He's been named as, do, what do we know about him?
4: We don't know much. Uh, we do We do know that law enforcement uh, was aware of him before. We don't know why. There's been some rumors, suggesting that he might have a political ambition. Um, country concerts tend to draw a more conservative crowd here in the U.S., <laughs> I'm not saying that's what happened here, but it's got to be, it's being looked at, I'm told. Um, you know, it, it, we, we just don't know. And that's part of the problem. Is we, you, you don't want this to happen. I covered Aurora. I covered San Bernardino, which was a terror attack. Um, and, you know, you, you, you never want these things to happen anywhere in the world. Has and, and, this and been ruled out as a terror attack? It has, it has been ruled out as a terror attack. It is not a terror attack.
1: Uh, in terms of other people involved, because I know there was police talking about a, a female person of interest as well uh, in this. What do we know about that?
4: We her her gaming card was found in his room. So when you come to Vegas, you know if you've been there, you have those gaming cards, and it was found in his room where this was, where he was shooting from. And so I be, I believe that she's now taken into custody. They have found her. Um, that hasn't been officially announced, I don't think yet, by the authorities, but uh, that's what we're hearing.
1: Okay. And look, you you touched on it at the start there, Adam. I I suppose, look, this attack is still very fresh, but the the debate inevitably now moves on to guns and you've been here before. This is the worst mass shooting in US history, but inevitably it's going to become about about, uh, what guns did he have and how did he get them?
4: It is. I I don't know what... I don't know what the answer is. I mean that's that's part of the problem. I mean, you know, America's a little bit different than than, than Europe. Um, yeah, I, I've been spending a lot of time over there with my wife and I love Ireland. It's you know, beautiful is but it's a different it's different different people. We have yeah. different things. And the problem we're gonna have here is, you know, even if the it, 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 even if there's a law, the problem is they're, if they're going to kill somebody, they're not going to worry about a gun law, and I think that's you have to figure. It's, it's a mentality issue we have here in this country right now. I mean, it's really a mentality issue around the world, isn't it? In every yeah. way.
1: Adam Husley Fox. And, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, Adam. No, way. no,
4: no I, I know you got to go, but I appreciate you guys uh, with your interest and and, and I would just pray for everybody here and uh, know that uh, you know we are doing, everybody's doing their best to try to make sure this doesn't happen again.
1: All right, listen, thanks very much for speaking to us, Adam. I know it's a, a, a hectic time there for you and everyone else. Adam Husley Fox News senior correspondent, who is in Las Vegas. Stay with us here in high noon. We'll be back in a moment.
0: High noon. This, this. is News Talk.
1: You're very welcome back to High Noon. Kieran Cudahy standing in today. Five three one zero six is the text number, or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cudahy. Gerald Flynn, the employment specialist with Align Management, joins me on the line to talk about. This new super union that uh, might be on the cards, members of IMPACT, the Civil, Public and Services Union, the CPSU, and the Public Service Executive Union, the PSEU, are going to begin voting in the coming weeks on whether they want to become, join together to become the largest union for public servants in the state. they would be called uh, Forza, and they would have a war chest of about 15 million euro for industrial action. Uh, Gerald, before we talk about... I suppose, whether this might happen and its import. From, from the union's from point of view, from those three organisations, what would be the rationale? Why join together?
5: Well, the rationale is uh, basically, I suppose, the theory of unity and strength and um, economies of scale. So um, if you bring the three together, then presumably you can work from one head office over time. You can have a more streamlined structure. Uh, you can share then uh, various uh, shared services such as media, communications offices, um, HR, administration, conference organizing, all that kind of thing. But uh, this had been in the air before, and in fact the three unions um, danced around each other and held hands, but uh, rejected a merger back around 2004, 2005. But, um, I think uh, the shock of the public service pay cuts in 2010 and 11 forced them to reconsider and go back to the uh, drawing board.
1: Why did they reject it uh, back in, what was that, about 12, 13 years ago? The
5: same reasons as it may well be rejected uh, this time is, uh, especially the public service executive union people felt that they would be swamped by the much larger impact. Impact has 60,000 members and the other two unions that are mainly civil service unions have about 10,000 each. So it is natural to expect that they may well be swamped by impact. And impact is mainly a union of... Local councils, local authorities, and the health service.
1: So, so uh, from the CPSU and the PSEU point of view, there was a concern that impact uh, that they'd be swamped, and that impact that those members would have, I suppose, uh, different different interests, different goals from them. Is that it?
5: Yes, and there may be a little bit of snobbishness in that um, the two smaller unions are uh, essentially civil service unions, whereas the others are public servants. Now, your listeners may not be fully aware of the, uh, the difference, but uh, within uh, the ranks of the public sector, uh, civil servants would regard themselves as a notch above. And also, uh, some of the PSEU members refer back to the fact that uh, the tax officials merged as part of IMPACT many years ago, and they felt that they were swamped and their voice was drowned within the larger IMPACT union. But uh, they're going to ballot. All of them, 80,000, will get an opportunity to ballot. And the new union is provisionally being called FORSA. That's with a father, F-O-R-S-A. And uh, there are also, of course, commercial aspects insofar as uh, there has been a financial review that was undertaken in May 2016. It turns out the PSEU has assets of about 15 million. Impact has liquid assets of about 45 million. But the CPSU, representing uh, more junior ranks, in the civil service are uh, financially straitened. I understand.
1: This is, I suppose, it sounds like the kind of, the, the officers don't want to get into bed with the soldiers. But uh, uh,
5: w- well, there's whoa. an element of that always in the public service, and even in the local authorities, an impact impact uh, generally represented uh, the officer grades uh, rather than the service grades or the servants or outdoor staff. They sometimes referred to them as.
1: If they did vote to join together, what would be the import of of a union that big existing?
5: Well, it it would act, I suppose, as a counterbalance to uh, the largest union in the country, which is SIPTU. SIPTU has about maybe 60,000 public service members out of the 200,000 membership. And um, it would probably be um, appreciated in that uh, it would be a single voice. It would definitely become the dominant voice in the public services committee of congress and unfortunately the irish trade union um, landscape is very biased towards the public service in other words about four out of five public servants and civil servants are members of trade unions whereas only about one in five of the private sector and this is why generally when you hear the irish congress of trade unions getting excited about things it always seems to be about paying conditions for public servants rather than for uh, what you might call ordinary private sector workers.
1: Is is that just the fault of private sector workers though? Like if they wanted more could join unions?
5: Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, Their employers don't necessarily encourage it. Whereas in the public service, um, as soon as people are recruited, uh, they're offered kind of deduction of union dues at source and things like that. So uh, the um, atmosphere towards trade unions would be much more hostile in uh, areas like say hotel and catering and that compared to in the public service so that's one factor the other factor is quite often better paid employees are better at at negotiating collectively that's why an awful lot of people who are actually represented now by unions are professionals um, people like uh, doctors and nurses and engineers
1: if they were to, to to join together or rather I suppose the, the the rationale for joining together as you said uh being this the idea that they'd have more clout uh, if they're together the bigger numbers better at uh, negotiating uh, and and that this is more likely in the wake of uh cuts to public sector workers paying conditions uh, during the recession is there a sense that the unions failed public sector workers over the last 10 years post 2007 2008 certainly?
5: Well, there's two ways of looking at it. Uh, one is that they hoisted the white flag and they surrendered and agreed to um, pension levies and pay cuts of up to 14 15%. Um, that's the negative way of looking at it. The positive way of looking at it is there would have been very widespread uh, job cuts and redundancies and even more severe reductions in public services for the wider public had they not gone along with it. So uh, they really um, didn't have much of a choice one way or another. But uh, certainly uh, behind the scenes, the dominant personality was the impact leadership, especially impact leader Shea Cody. And interestingly, if this new FORSA union of the three unions uh, amalgamating comes about, we will have three general secretaries rather than just one general secretary
1: because I, I know that the private sector workers will be listening to this and thinking you know that, that the public sector unions now look public sector workers as well listening uh, will disagree with this but private sector workers will think look they didn't get too bad a deal during the recession nobody lost their jobs compared to private sector workers you know like what more possibly could they have wanted
5: well uh, that's not quite true a lot of people actually on temporary contracts and that lost work a lot of teachers are on very uh, low hours and things like that. Uh, a lot of people um, suffered fairly severe uh, pay cuts in take-home pay. So that's the point I was making earlier. While they may not have lost their jobs, certainly their terms of employment and employment conditions um, deteriorated fairly uh, dramatically. It depends on which part of the private sector you're in. If you're in the manufacturing and the multinational sector, you've probably been enjoying pay rises of 2 or 3% a year for each of the last four or five years, unlike, say, the public service, then the public service have good pension deals and that. So it's, um, it's horses for courses. And uh, you can't make a complete divide just between public and private. Some people in the public service do very well. Some people are scraping to get by, and likewise in the private sector.
1: Uh, within the union sector to have a, a union of this size of over 80,000 uh, um, members is that a healthy thing? Do they not essentially become the de facto voice then for, for all other workers as well?
5: Well the general policy of the Congress of Trade Unions and government policy has been since uh, for the last 30 years to actually even subvent uh, unions in doing mergers and things like that. So um, there is a certain logic. Ireland did have for its uh, working population had a very, very large number of trades unions. When I started out in this game, there was about 80 trades unions, and now it's down around 30, 32 or thereabouts. So um, there has been a fair bit of uh, amalgamations, but a lot of them have come about because the smaller unions have run into financial crisis and need the financial support of larger unions, and finance may be a driving factor
4: behind this merger as well.
1: But I suppose, like, you know, does it become the, when I say the de facto voice, It's it, it carries so much weight with so many members. Is there a danger that the smaller unions will worry that, look, their voices become increasingly less relevant when there's this huge beast in the room?
5: Well, that is very much, that's a very good point to make, Ciarán, because uh, that arose in the last um, public service uh, deal, whereas the, Upper level, the principal officers and uh, assistant secretary type civil servants, the more senior management grades, who are members of a different union, the Association of Higher Civil and Public Servants, they felt that they were um, led up the garden path and that private deals were done by impact. So most of the gains, if not all of the gains, went to people who were earning less than 65000 a year, i.e. impact members and PSEU members, whereas their people um, took bigger cuts back around 2010, 2012, and they feel that they are um, down the line in kind of the recovery stakes. So they felt hard done by, and there's no question that they would agree to a merger with these other three unions.
1: Uh, and finally, Gerald, then, before I let you go, what's your sense of where this will go? Do you think we will end up with Forza, this super union?
5: Like I say, it was rejected uh, before, but <coughs> Shay Cody and his team in the Impact Head Office are very astute, Uh, it's um, unlikely they would count their chickens before they're hatched. I'd say they have done their work, I'd say they have a fairly good idea, and um, they wouldn't want it to go to a ballot unless they had a healthy chance of getting it through. I think they will, but if there is a large minority of PSEU, you never know how that can fall out. Uh, Remember mergers like this, where discontented groups have actually led to union splits in the past. And uh, who knows, there may well be a union split over the next two or three years.
1: All right, Gerald Flynn, employment specialist with Align Management. Thanks very much for speaking to us. All right, Gerald Flynn, employment specialist with Align Management. Thanks very much for speaking to us now. Donald Trump's administration has been criticized for allegedly failing to do enough to help Puerto Rico, as most of its 3.4 million residents struggle with a lack of power, shortages of water, and collapsed infrastructure following Hurricane Maria. However, as always, uh, Trump has taken to Twitter, and he said in a series of tweets that the federal government has done a great job with the almost impossible situation. I saw another FEMA director saying that uh, this was logistically the biggest challenge ever faced by the United States, the country who put a man on the moon. Uh, I'm joined on the line now to discuss all of this by Victoria Jones of Talk Media News. Uh, Victoria, like, can this type of stuff be damaging to Donald Trump anymore or are we just beyond that now?
6: Well, we seem to be beyond it because, um, you know, he was def- he was defended over the weekend by members of his administration as, well, you know, when he's attacked, he attacks back, as though that's okay. Um, And as though it's okay that when you've got 3.4 million Americans uh, who have 55% of whom do not have drinking water and 95% of them do not have any power or any electricity, um, for him to then, uh, you know, attack the island effectively, but it's okay. So, But it, it seems as though it's okay. It, it's a very bizarre situation. The mayor of San Juan, um, who was the person who he is saying attacked him, Carmen Cruz, she accused the Trump administration of killing us with the inefficiency after the storm, and she begged him. And uh, Trump is visiting Puerto Rico on Tuesday to make sure somebody's in charge that's up to the task of saving lives. And she appealed, appealed for help to save us from dying. And uh, she said there's only one goal, and it's saving lives. It, and, and he took that as a direct attack.
1: Victoria, you might just uh, uh, enlighten our listeners, because a lot of people, I suppose, mightn't understand the, the, the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States.
6: Well, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. And what that means is that it doesn't exactly have voting rights in the U.S. Capitol, but the residents are still Americans. So it's sort of a strange situation. They are Americans. Spanish is spoken on the island. But it's a strange situation. I mean, for example, I actually heard somebody, I was on the radio, and I actually heard somebody say last week, well, do they have their own president? So there's a lot of misunderstanding about the the state of uh, Puerto Rico, the status of Puerto Rico and um, what its relationship is with the United States. But people on Puerto Rico are American citizens. and there were actually questions last uh, week by people of does Trump understand? whether Puerto Ricans are Americans?
1: Yeah, because that's the point I was getting at. Uh, they, they are American citizens. It is U.S. territory. It's unthinkable that this situation would be allowed to persist as long as it has uh, if this had happened in Houston, for example.
6: Well, it is. Um, that Now, President Trump was saying fairly early on, and he continued to say, actually, as late as the end of last week, there's very big water There's big ocean. Those were words that he used, big water, big ocean. And that's what he's been saying as the reason why they haven't been able to get help there. And it's true that the island is absolutely devastated. Roads are destroyed. They are having difficulty getting into the middle of the island. But people have pointed out that ships are able to position themselves outside of the hurricane zone and then get in with aid and that um, private companies have done this with ships and have got in, but the government did not position its own ships to do that, and that that is part of the lack of response. Also, that the ports are completely clogged with aid, and that the, the containers cannot get out of the ports because they don't have drivers, because the people of Puerto Rico cannot get there to drive the container ships.
1: The, the the fact that he's visiting uh, uh on Tuesday tomorrow and the fact that well excuse uh, me and, and yeah sorry and and the fact that he's visiting Donald Trump is visiting Puerto Rico tomorrow and he dedicated a golf trophy yesterday to them we should mention that i'm sure that people of Puerto Rico were hugely thankful is it an indication that uh, maybe someone's had a word that actually look this is a US territory these are US citizens we we, we do need to show some sort of face here
6: Well, this trip to Puerto Rico is going to be absolutely fascinating because it is uh, very Democratic, not Republican, um, on that island. So it's going to be a very interesting trip. And it is being seen by many as too little, too late. He used to criticize President Obama for golfing too much and for not getting out, uh, for getting out of Washington too much. And uh, he spent the entire weekend at his golf club and was visibly seen watching a golf tournament. And then, at the end, dedicated this golf trophy to hurricane victims, and a lot of more than one person accused him of sort of Marie Antoinette type behaviour.
0: Hi noon. This, this is News Talk. You are listening
1: to High Noon here on News Talk. Kieran Cudahy standing in today. 53106 is the text number or you can get us on Twitter. Get me on Twitter at Kieran Cudahy. The news, the big news this afternoon, as Andrea just said there, is that shooting in Las Vegas, the biggest shooting, mass shooting in US history. More than 50 people killed and 200 injured. Uh, Earlier we spoke to Adam Hustley of Fox News and he was telling us the fact that there are still bodies being taken out of the venue. It was this vacant lot uh, near the Mandalay Hotel. So that number could continue to rise he also made a point that uh, look the pandemonium that that, that still uh, still exists there it's very early in the morning there obviously uh, in Las Vegas um and uh, he also made the point that at the end of the hotel um at the end of the at the end of the runway um is the Mandalay hotel for people who fly into Vegas from 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 Ireland uh, they'll notice the big hotel he said at the end of the runway and it was there on the 32nd floor that this shooting occurred uh, this is Adam uh, Adam Husley from Fox News
4: you might imagine a very uh, sad and and, and horrific uh, event uh, here in Vegas. And right now, I think the question is: is you know the, uh, the investigation at this point is is going forward, and how this individual got his weapon, how he got how he got the approval. Um, and you know, at that point, uh, you know, at this point, I, I'm standing outside actually the crime scene right now, and there's bodies still inside that haven't been removed. I mean, this was not expected by anybody, and I, it's one of those nights where all of a sudden people are having a concert and they're enjoying their time and they're ending the kind of the summer here in Las Vegas and, and it turns into a horrific scene. We've heard stories of people running out and basically throwing bodies into cars and driving off towards the hospital without even waiting for first responders to arrive. Um, and if I know you're being, being from Dublin. I've actually been to Dublin and knowing flying in from that, area, that direction. When you fly into Vegas, if you fly, it, if you've ever been out here, it's the hotel at the end of the runway. You can see the Mandalay as you come into land. Um, so for your listeners that's that's kind of the perspective of where this took place the shooter was in the 36th, uh, 36th floor and shot down uh, into an area that's a, basically a vacant lot uh, across the street from the hotel where this concert was taking place, almost like a little carnival they'd set up.
1: Yeah and Stephen Paddock uh, was that shooter, that was Adam Hosey uh, from Fox News uh, in Las Vegas speaking to me a little bit earlier Adam went on to make the point that look of course this inevitably starts the gun debate and the gun ownership debate in the United States but I think he made an interesting point he said look there's a deeper conversation the United States has to have with itself and it's about mentality it's not just about uh, the ability to get their hands on guns it's about the mentality that exists among some people in that country that it's a good idea once you have those guns to carry out these mass shootings we've had Sandy Hook we had um, Orlando we had New York in the last few years huge mass shootings this now the biggest in US history over 50 confirmed dead and that number likely to rise and we will update you as there is any news on Las Vegas right here throughout the show and indeed throughout the day on News Talk. We return our attention now uh, to matters domestic, very much domestic, uh, because we're talking about Irish brands and Irish products. Recently, the Irish Times set out to discover uh, just which brands were Ireland's favourites. Uh, their survey got a huge response and here to the re- discuss the results is uh, Connor Pope, Consumer Affairs Correspondent with the Irish Times. Uh, Connor, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Um, I suppose that, that the very first question is the obvious one. What is Ireland's favourite brand? Well,
7: we don't have a definitive answer Yes. But- Yes, because I wanted to open up to a wider wider audience. Okay. Now, there was a lot of people who, who who suggested the same number of brands again and again and again. So it won't be any surprise that Guinness features a lot when people talk about them, the most beloved Irish brand or Kerrygold or Flahavans. Uh, so these were the brands that came up again and again and again. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to present a list to people. Oh, sorry, the other one, of course, was Tato. It would hardly come as any surprise <laughs> to you. But I wanted to just you know, present a list of 15 or 20 iconic and soon to be iconic Irish brands because it's not just all about the, the, the legacy brands the likes of Sudacream which is a brand that I particularly love and I love the backstory I didn't know
1: this was Irish
7: actually no, that, that's the thing and like, it, like one of the things I tried to do in the piece in today's Irish Times is give people some interesting tidbits about some of the brands so for instance I didn't know that Guinness only started producing Porter in uh, the 1770s and it only became a dedicated stout producer in 1799 after importing Porter from London and prior to in 1759 it made ale uh, Pseudocreme is another great Irish brand from the 1920s and initially it was it was invented by a chemist a pharmacist in the Liberties and it was initially called you know it, then it was called soothing soothing cream but Dubliners struggled with the TH pronunciation and it became known as Pseudocreme and it is now the market-leading nappy rash cream in Ireland and the UK. And it is one of the market-leading brands uh, across the world for that particular thing. But it wasn't just the older legacy brands like Sudacream, like Guinness, like Flavins, like Kerrygold. There's also in the up-and-coming brands. You have Water Wipes, for instance. Now, Water Wipes operates in a fairly similar realm to Sudacream. Some of your listeners will be familiar with it. It's only eight or nine years old. and um, It was invented by a guy in uh, Drogheda a chap called Edward McCluskey. It only uses water and grapefruit seed extract and it can be used on the bottoms of newborn babies, which yeah. other wipes can't. And the interesting thing about it is it's only eight years old. It's got a huge market share in Ireland, I think 30, 35% and it's available in 30, 40 countries all over the world. I, remember,
1: that, I remember last year uh, being in Tesco and they had sold out of water wipes for about two weeks absolutely. that you couldn't
7: get them. And, and what's nice about it is it's an Irish product and the concept is entirely Irish, and it literally came about from this guy who wanted to create wanted a, a better product for his own children. So there's that, and then there's things like my waddy. Everyone is familiar with my waddy, but I bet you a billion pounds, Kieran, you can't tell me what my waddy stands for.
1: My Waddy. <laughs>
7: <laughs> in fact, I bet none of your listeners who haven't read my piece in today's Irish Times would be able to tell you that My Waddy stands for Mineral Water Distributors. Now, isn't that very disappointing? I bet oh, you God, that is, really the, exotic, that's grim. But it's yeah. not that. But then there's other brands, like other things like Kerrygold, for instance. Kerrygold is a, a brand beloved of us. I'm sure we all love the, would you put a bit of butter on the spuds there now, Andre, and who's taking the horse to France and all that stuff. But it was actually invented by Tony O'Reilly, or Sir Anthony O'Reilly, in the 1960s when he was head of Bourbonne. And it wasn't available in the Republic of Ireland until the 1970s because it was exclusively for the UK market initially. And I love the fact what, that... Was it, ke- it was
1: just exploiting kind of the the, the, the Irish community over there, exactly. was that it? And
7: no, no, and because we genuinely make a brilliant product. Okay. Dairy gold, our, Kerry gold our, our dairy products are genuinely I think they're the best in the world, um, but yeah, I love the fact that there's a street in Germany and Kerrygold is hugely popular in Germany. I love the fact that there's a street in Germany that's called Kerrygold Strass I mean, it's not every st- it's not every product that gets a street named after. Then there's the Barrys. <laughs> it's like Bobby
1: and, Sand Street in uh, <laughs> in, 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 Cuba, in Havana.
7: I've been on it. Oh yeah. Uh, and then there's of course there's the, the whole uh, the the tea the tea wars between Barrys and Lions because like I don't know where you're from, but I mean if you're from Dublin, a lot of Dublin people would be incl- inclined towards lions tea. Whereas country people, and people from Cork specifically, are Barry's people. But the interesting thing, I think, about tea in Ireland is why, we, why our tea tastes are very different from tea in the UK. And let's face it, tea everywhere else in the world is vile.
1: Yeah, it is. It's, it's awful. Horrible. That's it why doesn't doesn't we bring tea bags on holidays.
7: Exactly. I, I lived in Spain uh, 20 years or 25 years ago. And my mammy used to send home send me over tea bags in an envelope every week, because you just couldn't get good tea. And Why? Uh,
0: but, it's just the blend.
7: And these are the kind of things, these are the kind of facts that I like uncovering. But in the 1940s, like, we, used to get, we used to import all our tea from the United Kingdom. But then in 1939, obviously, the start of the Second World War, rationing was imposed in a major way in the United Kingdom. And virtually all our tea, I think 80% or thereabouts of all our tea just disappeared. Okay. So, the, Sean Lamass, who was then the Minister for Supplies, sent the Irish tea distributor, set up a company called Irish Tea Distributors, or Tea Importers Limited, and, and he charged them with going off to find tea directly in source. So, they couldn't go to India, which was a British colony, colony. So, instead, they went to Kenya and they went to East Africa. They liked the darker tea. We developed a taste for darker tea, and that's why we drink a very different tea to anywhere else in the world. And, interestingly, tea importers later went on to become, you're not going to believe this, Anglo Irish Bank. It is the dire- Anglo Irish Bank was the direct descendant of Tea Importers Limited <laughs> because Tea Importers Limited became the Irish Bank of Commerce and then the Irish Bank of Commerce became Anglo Irish Bank. So tea is directly to blame for our economic collapse. Oh
1: yeah. Uh, f- look I should say to people who are listening 53106 please get in touch let us know about any iconic brands you think should or, or, or might be included or have been overlooked um, uh, Red Lemonade is uh, one I wanted to ask you about uh, you know TG Cahar use of a great uh, a tagline kind of years ago I think they were still uh, Tina G at the time and it was Ireland where the lemons are red um, it, 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 it is uniquely Irish do you, do you get it in other countries Red Lemonade? No
7: and I tried to find out a little bit more about it but what I can tell you is TK TK Red Lemonade was a pioneer in the Irish soft drink market, set up in 1888. It was one of the first fizzy drinks in in, in Ireland. Um, and, you know, it's, it's probably as far from Mother Nature as you can possibly get. Because <laughs> literally, I was looking at, like, the ingredient list. Uh, water, sugar, citric acid, potassium sorbate, aspartame, saccharine, and then colours, sunset yellow, quinoline yellow, carmasine green, and S. Oh, my favourite
1: shade of green. <laughs>
7: <laughs> and weirdly, and this was a kind of troubling thing, and I mean no disrespect to TK Lemonade because I have a soft spot for it, despite the fact that it's probably been about thirty years since I've had a glass of it. But uh, it, when you go to the Tesco website, it lists um, TK Lemonade, and then it has a warning: may have an adverse may have an adverse effect on activity and attention in children. Because some of those colours have been linked to uh, ADHD and all sorts of things. Now, it isn't proven, and but under EU regulations, you have to have a warning on that product. And you're kind of thinking that's a bit peculiar. But there you go. That's 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 what's there on that product. And then, but I want to I want to make it clear like there's things like Avonmore Flavins is one of my favourite ones because Flavins is. You know, a lot of the products that we're talking about here, like Guinness's, like when was that last Irish? I mean, our, even Lion's Tea, I think, is made in Manchester. Um, you know, a lot of these products haven't been Irish for a long time. Some of them ha- some of them are. Obviously, Kerrygold is still an Irish product. Water yeah. wipes, things like that. But Flav- Flavins has been in the same family since 1785. And that's when the family first took, started making uh, milling uh, oats and making porridge. But the big thing again... Down in Watford, is that where Flavins that's is? That's right. Yeah. Now, but I bet you, you don't know why, because obviously everyone knows them as Flavins, the Progress Oatlets. But I bet you don't know why they're called the Progress Oatlets. I have no idea. Neither did I. But I found out that in the 1930s, they added a new and innovative technology to their mill, which allowed them to create rolled oats, which could be cooked in uh, five minutes as opposed to 30 minutes. In the 1930s, they became known as the Progress Outlets, and that's what we're still calling them today. Oh,
1: it took people half an hour to make their porridge before <laughs> Flavins came along.
7: Yeah, I like, but that was, before, that was in the days before microwaves now as well, because now you can, get your, you can get your microwave porridge and it can be done in two minutes. But uh, yeah, you'd, and you'd have, I, I remember like my grandmother, now this is going back, uh, and they had porridge and it was obviously vile because she used to make it water, because times were tough in the 1970s. Oh, but yeah. but, uh, but like, she'd be soaking the oats like overnight.
1: Oh yeah, but hold on, there's a whole new thing about doing that as well. You know, you've never Maguire and these people telling me I can't have porridge unless I soak it in oats <laughs> overnight or oh, yeah, soak it in overnight water. Overnight or, or, it's not yeah. even called
7: porridge anymore. It's yeah, exactly, oats. you know. Uh, but actually on the Irish Times website, I know you'll probably get some of your listeners texting in with responses to what they think is the best Irish brand, but we have it, we've, we've opened it up to a vote. So if people, if people go on to the Irish Times website, they can actually vote. And right now I can tell you that uh, it's neck and neck between tato. Which, by the way, was set up in a two bedroom flat uh, 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 above, a sh- above a shop on Moore Street. So you have Tato on 16.94%, Guinness on 16.53%, and then Kerrygold is in third spot on 12.4%, but it's still all to play for.
1: I, I'm struck, like, you know, the most beloved Irish brands, because people, I suppose, might vote. You could have a different definition, you know, I suppose people might, there'd be a nostalgic value to some of these brands, but, but, but people might not have used, you know, Kerrygold or cream or had a pint of Guinness in God knows how exactly, long, but still vote. Exactly. Uh, whereas y- there are kind of modern brands in there as well. Ryanair is on the list, is well,
7: it? Well, you have to put Ryanair in, I mean, for all its flaws, and Lord knows it has some flaws. Um, like it has completely revolutionised air travel in Europe and it has democratised air travel and it has gone from being a tiny little airline flying from Waterford to London Gatwick in the 1980s to being the biggest airline in Europe flying hundreds of millions of people around the world every year or 130, 129 million this year so I mean like it does deserve and it is a uniquely Irish brand I mean like Michael O'Leary he lives in Ireland the the company's headquartered here so like it does deserve that Uh, and then there's smaller like the opposite I'd say the polar opposite of Reiner would be Tupi. Now, a Tupi, some of your listeners will be familiar with it, is a a designer, a jewellery designer. But what I like about the Tupi stuff is that she uh, she uses all of these things. Like she uses, like she makes the jewellery with, uh, at their core, they might have a delicate swan feather found along the banks of the Royal Canal in Dublin, or there's twig rings which have at their core little hawthorn branches found in in, uh, uh, forests in Wexford or or Wicklow or whatever. so there's and then there's obviously avocas another really popular brand at the moment but you know there were so many that i'd written 2500 words and realized i just have to stop now
1: yeah,
8: and
7: I haven't even mentioned Malou or Johnson, Mooney or, and O'Brien or Yeah, Ballymaloe
1: is another one that people get sent their relish when they're off <laughs> living in Canada or. So. And Pe- it
7: deserves that because it's a brilliant product
1: And people are getting in touch as well, Bewley's, wondering if Bewley's should be on you know the list You know what, I
7: should have put Bewley's on the list, that's my own mistake Because Bewley's is a very intrinsically Irish brand and they do deserve a lot of credit
1: uh, Anne is wondering about Manhattan Peanuts
7: they're based out in Finglas i think they make they still make their pop their popcorn and their peanuts again you see it's only when you start realizing it because like we live in a very uh globalised world where everything is about multinationals. But there are a huge number of companies that are, are indigenous to Ireland, and they do deserve a bit of credit. And I think that's, that's what prompted me to write the piece, because I think it is interesting to have, just to reflect on all of these things. Now you can say, okay, well, I like the fact that TK Lemonade exists. I like the fact that TK Lemonade is on the shelves. Would I drink it? No. Would I give it to my kids? Probably not. But I still like the fact that it's one of these intrinsically Irish products.
1: All right, Connor Pope, Consumer Affairs Correspondent with the Irish Times. If people want to vote, they can visit the Irish Times website. Or if you want to uh, abuse Connor for not including one of your beloved brands on the list, you can find him on Twitter. Uh, stay with us here on High Noon. Uh, coming up next is the start of National Road Safety Week.
0: High Noon. This, this. is News Talk.
1: You're very welcome back to High Noon. Kieran Cotahy with you here today. 53106 is the text number. Loads of people getting in touch about that last item. Ireland's most iconic brands. McDonald's curry sauce made in Drogheda. Brennan's bread. Uh, Rock Shandy. Bachelor's peas. Super quince. Sausages. Jemison Irish whiskey. How oh, the list goes on and on. Conor Pope unfortunately couldn't include them all. Uh, someone here, Noel and Dundalk says, what about Watered Crystal? No Irish wedding gift list complete without it. Uh, and also this one from Joe. We were talking about porridge and Flavin's porridge and people soaking it overnight. Uh, Joe says I still make my porridge with water and I soak it overnight. Then I add pecan nuts, blueberries, cinnamon, and honey. Eating that at seven thirty a.m. means means I need no snacks until one p.m. lunchtime. I'm going to have to check that number after the show. I'm pretty confident that's my father-in-law I actually have haven't texted in to the show. Uh, Thanks for listening, Joe. Uh, right now, though, we turn our attention to child safety seats, child car seats, should I say. Did you know as many as 80% of them aren't fitted correctly? Uh, joining me on the line to talk about this and how to fit them co- correctly um, is Aisling Leonard. She's the RSA Senior Promotional Officer and she's here as well to mark the start of National Road Safety Week. Ashling, you're very welcome to the show. Uh, that, that figure of 80%, four out of every five uh, child car seats not being fitted correctly, uh, I suppose it begs the obvious question, why? Why is that so? So high?
8: Yeah, I suppose it can stem from very simple things to, to more serious things. I suppose the most common thing that we come across is that it's simply too loose. So it could be rooted correctly all the way through, but then it's actually not pulling enough of the slack out of the belt. And that can, you know, have grave consequences in the event of a, a crash. So that's the most common thing that we come across. Um, and like.
1: I- and is there a difference, I suppose, between uh, the those people who use one that's just tied down by the seatbelt and people who use Isofix? Are Isofix generally people kind of get that right? Do they?
8: Yeah, I suppose with the Isofix, there's less risk of um, you know fitting it incorrectly. So you know, it's it's kind of a plug and play type of thing. You plug it yeah. in, and, and you make sure that all the green indicators are on. Um, but with the seat belt it can be slightly different because you know you have to route it through correctly and then you have to remove all the slack so yes in a word the ISOFIX does kind of reduce that risk there
1: Um, we should say to people who aren't aware ISOFIX is uh, like a a kind of a a solid base that stays in the car and there's kind of metal bars at the back of the seat on newer models of car kind of from maybe 2010 on there in in all cars I think
8: that's right yeah it connects to the chassis of the car so it connects to the actual body of the car and, you know, for the, the newborn child, the base actually stays in the car permanently and then you can click the car seat in and out. Um, and then for the ones that are for the older children, that they plug into the car permanently. So, you know, there is um, less of a risk of getting that wrong.
1: I find myself with the seatbelt uh, one that it, it depends on the car as much as the car seat. You know that some yeah. cars, it seems to be a lot easier to to get the slack out of the belt and to tie it in in such a way that the seat really doesn't move. But in other cars, no yeah. matter how much you pull it or whatever it happens to be, it, there's always a wobble in it.
8: Yeah, and that's a great point to bring up because um, we always advise that you get the car seat actually fitted into your car before you buy because there's lots of things, like you say, the, the slack of the seatbelt. Sometimes the, the seat belts are actually too short to get the the seat actually fitted in correctly. Um, and other ones then have locking mechanisms on them and everything. So it is really important to get it fitted into the car, make sure that it's compatible with both your child and the car. And then other things like apart from the seatbelt is like you could have um, sloped seats or sports seats, that it just makes it a little bit more difficult to get a one size fits all in terms of fitting them in.
1: Dude, I assume all the bigger retailers uh, will offer when you're buying a, a car seat will offer to, to, to fit it for you and show you how it fits.
8: Yeah, most of them do um, because they, they realise the importance of it. So, you know, what we would advise is to actually find a retailer who, who offers that service and who'll actually put it into your car. And especially if you've got other car seats in the car that you need to consider as well. Um, it's really important to get them fitted in and, that, you know, bring along your child as well and they'll set up all the straps and everything for you.
1: Well, what age can you just let them sit in the car on their own and belt them in as you would anyone else?
8: Yeah, so it doesn't go by age at all, which is interesting because everybody thinks it does go by age. So okay. It goes, it goes by height and weight. So the two things that you need to look at is 150 centimetres in height and 36 kilos in weight. So it's your average kind of 10, 11, 12-year-olds.
1: Oh, right. Okay. So up up until then, they need to be in some sort of seat.
8: That's right. Yeah. So you're looking, say, for the older children, you're looking at the high back booster seat. um, And that's used with just the adult seat belt. So that that will do them all the way up to 150 centimetres and 36 kilos.
1: Okay. And below that, they'll have a a seat. uh, They have to have a seat or they should have a seat that has its own belts built into it. Is that it?
8: yeah so it, it it does depend on the seat you go for, but generally speaking, um you can have the in, internal harness in it so it has its own straps up to either 18 kilos or 25 kilos depending on the seat you get, and whether it's forward or rearward facing. After that, then you're looking at something like the high back booster seat that can be used from 18 kilos upwards:
1: When, all when, the way when should they flip around from being backward seating to forward seating?
8: Well, obviously the rearward facing, so backwards, is much safer because the seat actually absorbs most of the crash impact then rather than the child's body. So we would recommend keeping them rear facing for as long as possible. Um, that can be generally up to about four years. Um, but that's not always practical. It's not always possible. It depends on how many seats you have in the car and all of that. But yeah. of course, where it is possible, we do recommend it.
1: Now, most people who have, you say, your standard saloon car, uh, when you look at it at the back seat, there's three seat belts in it. Yeah. Uh, can you put kids in that middle one?
8: You can as long as, you, you know, most cars do. Just make sure you check the booklet to make sure that it is suitable for fitting a car seat on it. Um, some, of, some of the bigger cars, they actually have three full adult seats in the back, whereas some of the smaller ones have two kind of full ones on the side and a smaller one in the middle. So just to double check that it is um suitable for putting a car seat on
1: what what about uh having a kid in the front seat in a child seat where you switch off the airbag because a lot of people now would have you know a a key that'll slip out of the their main set of keys and you can click off the airbag or a switch in the car so
8: there's one or two things just consider there there's no law against putting a child in the front seat as long as they're in the proper child restraint for their height and weight if the back seat is available obviously they should be in the back it is much safer. The only legal stipulation in in putting them in the front is to make sure that the if you're using a backwards facing seat or so a rearward facing seat, the airbag cannot be active. If it's forward facing, just to it just to check the manual with the car seat, but usually the airbag can be active. But we'd recommend that you just roll the adult seat away from the dash as far as possible as well if that if that has to happen.
1: And is that just because the airbag comes out with such force that like while you or I could absorb it that it would actually uh, injure a child?
8: yeah, it's also the position as well, so the the airbags are tested for an adult in the seated position, okay. so you know your tummy is in a different position to where a child's tummy would be, and their head and their face and everything like that so that, that's another reason for doing that but it is based on the airbag um, being deployed and, and trying to reduce the risk of injury there.
1: There are plenty of parents out there uh, I'm sure and with the best intention will will strap their kid in and say they're a little bit older so that they're, they're not using a seat that has built in straps that they're mm-hmm. using the, the, the ones that are in the car and they loop the they would say the diagonal strap behind the child because they think that you know it's going up close to the neck or something that it could damage them that it's probably a bit safer just to have the one around the waist what about that
8: it's not good um i suppose seatbelts are designed to be on your shoulder and on your hip bones or your pelvis so it's you know it's the hard parts of the body the seatbelt shouldn't be in contact with any kind of soft part of the body like the tummy or the neck so that's kind of one of the advantages to the high back boosters rather than just the booster cushion by itself, because it actually positions the seat belt at the shoulder rather than the neck.
1: Okay, so if you if you're sitting in in the car and it's going across the neck, that's an indication maybe they're they're out of their booster too soon.
5: Exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so I mentioned. Sorry, I, I mentioned. Uh, actually, it's the start of uh, Road Safety Week. Uh, what is the overall push the meshe- message this year?
8: Um, well, there I know there's an academic lecture happening today um, on thirty kilometre zones and trying to encourage more county councils to do that. But I suppose in terms of what I'm here to talk about, um, we are in Drogheda this week, um, Drogheda and R D, with the Check It Fit service. So that's that's kind of where we're um, centering our our campaign this week, and we're also at the baby fair um, in the RDS this weekend as well.
1: Alright, very good. So if anyone is going to that baby fair, they can uh, get their car seat checked to see if it uh, sits, sits in, their child seat should I say, exactly. uh, to see if it sits in the car uh, perfectly. Ashling Leonard is the RSA Senior Promotional Officer. Thanks very much for speaking to us uh, on the show. As I said, it is the start of Road Safety Week and the RSA focusing on child safety in cars. About 80% of child seats are fitted in correctly. Uh, but if you go to any of those big retailers, they'll have a look, they'll tell you how to do it. Uh, otherwise, you can go to the baby fair in the RDS and Ashling. And her colleagues will show you how to do it properly. Uh, stay with us here on High Noon. We'll be back in a moment.
0: High Noon. This, this. is News Talk.
1: You're very welcome back to High Noon. Kieran Cudahy standing in today. 53106 is the text number that'll cost you 30 cents or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cudahy. Now, Falcha Ireland has been urged to renew its decision not to provide funding to Cork County Council for a major upgrade of facilities at Spike Island. The island has just been voted Europe's leading tourist attraction. So what makes it such a special place and why should it get all this help that it needs to discuss? I am joined by John Flynn, who's a supervisor, tour guide and historian researcher on Spike Island. John, you're very welcome to the programme.
9: Kevin, how are
1: you doing? Uh, not too bad. Uh, you, I, I have to say, I, I, at the weekend I got a, a kind of an alert on my phone, and it said, uh, you know, an Irish site, you know, wins top European prize, and I assumed it was going to be the Guinness Storehouse or Dublin Zoo or you know somewhere in Kilkenny, anywhere, anywhere in Kilkenny, really, you know, could have won it. Uh, but uh, Spike Island, uh, did do, do How many visitors come to Spike Island at the moment?
9: It's been a record year, to be honest, it's, uh we we're close to uh, over 45,000 so far this year. Wow. Um, it's been a massive uh, year for us, with uh, people from all over the world really visiting the past uh, 12 months, you know. So uh, I suppose this year has been an incredibly, um, very, very busy year for us.
1: And, and uh, wh- why, why this year? Has it been kind of growing year on year?
9: It has been really, you know, to be honest, it's been growing over the last uh, two years, um, you know, Uh, With uh, you know, I must face massive thanks to the Cork County Council for their part in taking this project on many years ago. And uh, you know, it's just really the the cities that we have down here now. And you're talking 1,300 years of history, you know, uh, posted over four pillars of history regarding prison, uh, military forts, and monastery. Families lived on the island, and of course, White Island is nestled in the second biggest natural harbour in the world. So, yeah, uh, to be honest, this year we've seen a, a massive growth and. People from now, you know, where it was locally before, it's now an international visit that we're getting. We're getting people from all over the world.
1: Yeah, because people, I suppose, like former prison Spike Island is is how most people would refer to it. Like, what is your pitch for Spike Island? Why should people visit it? What's so amazing about it?
9: Well, to be honest, the pitch, I would say to anyone, uh, and, you know, being honest again, is is reflecting on what people are saying leaving the island. It's just people don't rely on until they come here what's on the island. I suppose our two biggest feedbacks would be, first, the size of the island. is a 104-acre island. And second, it's the vast majority of history that's here. It's going back to a monastery in the seventh century, to the British Army who came here who built this massive fort, to uh, you know, to um, another prison in, in nineteen eighty five to two thousand and four and obviously during the war of independence you would have had some Republican political prisoners here as well. But so with that and the family life, it's unique. And obviously the big thing for us this year would be now the characters that were here, you know, the people that kind of were in prison here. Uh, over the centuries that were here and obviously then like, you have the monastery that was here as well and you know as you know yourself here in history does repeat itself a lot in tourism we had a saint here in the 7th century and you know the talk is from Rome is that a little girl that lived on the island called Ellen Organ known as little Nanny, of Holy God possibility of her now to become a saint is looking good as well so it's it's looking very good down here at the minute So, so
1: 2004 is when it was last functioning uh, as, as a state institution is it and, and did it lie idle then for some time before really it kind of took off as a tourist destination or what happened?
9: That's correct yeah I mean 2004 was the last of any prisoners who you know walked out of this island uh, it, it closed for a while um, I mean obviously there was talks back then and the Minister of Justice at the time was saying that you know possibly funding be put in a bridge built and a big superfrozen open here, but it never happened. And to be fair to the Carcun the Council, they were given this as a project, and they took, you know, you know, they could have said no, but they said yes. They saw the potential straight away in this, and now reflecting what we are uh, as we speak today, the European, uh, you know, Best Forest Action 2017 It's a massive achievement for a group of people we've done here, and you know the achievements we've done and the setup here over the last two or three years. It's really reflecting now this year because obviously the award just been announced. But secondly, uh, for the very first time ever as a tourist attraction, uh, Spike Island has been named number one in TripAdvisor for the best things to do in Cork. So this year has been absolutely amazing.
1: Hey, was that decided by a panel of judges or on the basis of TripAdvisor reviews?
9: Well, the award itself, that was uh, uh, announced in St. Petersburg in Russia. It was actually announced by a public vote uh, from people on Trip, TripAdvisor and not just visitor numbers so that reflects even bigger so I mean that taking that into account it even goes to show what people that do come here are taken home from it so I mean it really really is um, a massive place to come and see obviously people say of course we're going to say that but I mean it's the two biggest feedbacks we're getting and the growth in numbers and now to top it all off with the award and TripAdvisor number one I mean that speaks for itself really
1: When people visit the island what's on it now is, is there a big visitor centre is that what the County Council have invested in?
9: There is, there is. I mean, like, when you come onto the island now, like, you know, there's some options you can do. You can self-explore. Obviously, we all realise that a 104 acres is a big island. But then we have a guided tour, and I think the guided tours are something special, you know. Um, we, I personally think, and I know a lot of my colleagues and the management think as well, and, you know, we do believe here we're all highly trained, fault and trained, and we do believe we have, you know, probably the world's best storytellers here. And when you're doing tours here, it reflects not just the history here, but how the passion of the people on the island, you know, people have a big passion for the island, and that's coming through strongly, here in, in the feedback that we're getting with, obviously, reviews, you know, and yeah. an incredible amount of history here as well. So, like, to be fair to us, we did have to research the whole island before we could tell the story. We're learning things about Spike Island every day, but, you know, we think we have a right down here, and again... For us here on the island to get this award, it really shows the hard work management and staff have done here over the last few years.
1: Now, there there is a plan, or there has been a plan uh, for further investment and an expansion of the uh, services on the island, but that seems to have stalled. What, what 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 would that entail? What what extra work is planned, and what would that add to the whole experience?
9: Well, we did, to be fair, to Falcord and Cork and the council, they put some money into it in 2015, and you know. The visitor attraction now is is uh, more popular because you'd be able to go in and see these places. Like we have a massive museum reflecting on everything that happened here in the fort. We have the tunnels from Rock open. We have the biggest gun park in the country here. Uh, we have some tunnels. We have expeditions. You know the odd expedition. Um, and that money that was put in really bought Spike Island up a level. You know, so we're hoping. Obviously, you know, we get more funding. But again, that's you know that's not for me to uh, as a supervisor tour guide right there. That's for the other bodies to um.
1: Oh, yeah, and I I appreciate that. But what would it add? Like, what what, what would this fund, like, if you think of the six million that's gone into it so far, and you say it's kind of gone from being what was essentially a derelict site they didn't know what to do with, to winning this award as one of Europe's biggest tourist attractions. Like, uh, what would that extra money bring? What's the potential of Spike Island?
9: But the potential of the island is, is, is massive. And um, what that would do if we get further funding would obviously number one just um, enhance the public's uh, view of Spike Island even better. You know, where we could then open for for example, we're thinking of getting a road train on the island where, you know, there's a bit of a steep hill to get to the fort where people would be able to go up and you know, in comfort and view the place and obviously we wanna do a lot more attractions for families and kids and we also want to bring in the military style of it. We wanna bring in characters, you know, dress up in characters and bring it even more to life. Now, obviously, like any business or anything like that, you need funding for that. So, you know, phase one has been completed and it has, you know, phase one has obviously been a a huge success with this award. And we're hoping to go to phase two. And the most important thing for phase two, obviously, would be to just um, explore it more, to have the facilities here even better for the ordinary visitor who come and just see and hear about what incredible history has been gone through this island in the last 1,300 years.
1: All right, John Flynn, supervisor, tour guide, and historian researcher on Spike Island. John, thanks very much for speaking to us. It is just coming up to a quarter to two here on high noon, and leading neuroscientist Matthew Walker has said that sleep deprivation is increasing our risk of cancer, heart attacks, and Alzheimer's. So. Is this true? And just how closely is our quality and length of sleep linked to our health? To discuss this, I'm joined on the line now by Lucy Wolf, sleep consultant and trainer with This Works Sleep Therapy. Lucy, you're very welcome to the programme.
2: Hello, how are you?
1: Not too bad. Um, I suppose I'll ask you first of all about uh, this idea that uh, a lack of sleep uh, or sleep deprivation is linked to such serious conditions. Is there, There's science behind that, is there? No,
10: there is, and consistently studies are supporting the, these results that People who are not getting enough sleep are at a higher and increased risk for health issues. And they would generally be, you know, some cancers, heart disease, um, diabetes, early onset dementia. So this is consistently showing up. And I suppose it is important that we keep, you know, sleep in the health agenda conversation because it is showing us all of the time that it is the third pillar. Of health and well-being.
1: What then? It begs the question. What then is enough sleep?
10: Well, yes. Everyone is slightly different, and I suppose I try to work in bandwidth when I'm describing what a person might need. And last year, the American Association of Medi- uh, Sleep Medicine, rep- you know, changed the guidelines, you know, slightly to support that most adults need somewhere between seven and nine hours in order to be at their what their their optimum level.
1: And can you do that in tranches? Do you have to do it all in one go?
10: It's generally recommended to do it in one go. Because you Um,
1: hear people talking about, you know, oh, I I don't know, like the fact that, you know, we... uh people get sleepy during the day is some kind of kind of caveman hangover and we should all be having kind of long naps and then only sleeping four or five hours at night or something like that. Yeah,
10: Generally we're trying to complete maybe four to five sleep cycles in the overnight period so that we know that the, restore, you know, the repair and restoring um, is actually happening in the context of our sleep. I actually often recommend a nap but only if it's not impairing your ability to achieve sleep overnight or indeed maintain it overnight. And again, there's a couple of little guidelines that i often report with an app that we try not to let it be after 2.30 p.m. in order to maintain sleep drive at bedtime. And again, sometimes older people do better if they sleep in two halves. And most certainly, people on shift work would be recommended in order to try and meet their quota that they sometimes sleep in two parts as well. But we only ever try and do that if it doesn't affect the onset of sleep and the maintenance of your sleep as well.
1: When you get those four or five s- cycles, as you said, overnight so that the body can uh, kind of repair itself, What, what When you m- explain that a bit more, like what's actually happening when I'm asleep?
10: Well, I suppose throughout the night we alternate through sleep cycles. You know, people will be aware of, you know, light sleep, and, you know, dreamy sleep and deep sleep. And I suppose we alternate between the two phases. And we will need to complete those cycles in order for sleep to have its true restoring and biological maintenance supervision job, if you like. And so it's important that we get enough sleep. And it's also important that the quality of the sleep is good as well. And, you know, often the quality of your sleep is impaired by the use of electronic media before sleep time, the overuse of caffeine or alcohol. And so that although you might be meeting your quota of sleep, the actual level of quality of the sleep is impaired, which means it's not as good as, you know, the, the amount that you perceive you're having.
1: 53106 is the text number if anyone is listening and they have any questions uh, please do get in touch that'll cost you 30 cents or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cudahy Lucy, Lucy Wills sleep consultant with sleepmatters.ie and trainer with this work sleep therapy is is with me now when you talk about then quality of sleep and it's not just about quantity the quality matters how do I know if I'm getting poor quality sleep. Like, if I am going down at the right time and getting up and I think, right, that's the seven, eight hours clocked off, how do I know if that's not actually good well, sleep?
10: generally mood and behaviour, how you feel, those dips that you mentioned earlier, this, hang, this caveman hangover concept, obviously throughout the course of the day, our, our body clock is waxing and waning, if you like, and we're going to have those natural dips. But generally, we should have good alert. Uh, abilities throughout the course of the day and that we should feel like we're well rested. You know, if you can't get up in the morning when your alarm clock is going off, it can often indicate you're not getting enough sleep or not good enough quality sleep. Oh, so there's again,
1: nothing worse than being in a deep sleep when your alarm goes off, isn't there? I know,
10: and doesn't it always happen on the weekdays as opposed to the weekend? Oh,
1: yeah, it happened this morning. I was w- w- far away in Dreamland and my alarm yes, went off. Well,
10: I actually wasn't too far away from you there on that basis as well. And so I suppose... You know, it's how we feel as well, how we look. You know, if again, I work with um, families of young children, and often we'll be looking at how they look, you know, dark circles, red-rimmed eyes. And again, I think this is very important for our teenagers, that often they're on gadgets overnight. We think that they're getting enough sleep, but they don't seem like they're getting enough sleep. And then we might feel that you're not getting enough quality sleep and to try and have a better sleep hygiene or better sleep practices. That the whole focus of this is that we prioritise our sleep and we put it up okay. there what, in the you know it, as a priority.
1: What what are those practices? Because you've kind of touched on electronic devices and the effect they can have there. Yeah,
10: regularity with sleep is actually key. So waking up around the same time every day and going to bed around the same time every day without exception is probably the first thing we really l- recommend. When, especially if you're struggling with sleep, but to maintain a regularity and that you don't have wild differences between your wake times and your bedtimes on a seven-day period. That's probably the first thing. You know, things you'll have heard before, you know, lifestyle. So exposing yourself to bright light, having some sort of exercise regime, not eating too close to sleep time, large meals, that would be. Not exercising too close to sleep time either.
1: Yeah, when should you?
10: Exercise. We yeah. try not to exercise two to three hours before you want to go to sleep. Because, you know, modern life has really impacted our sleep. You know, the electric life, um, everything is open on a 24-hour basis. So the natural dip that should come for sleep isn't necessarily there anymore. So we need to create that. So relaxing the body, having a pre-sleep ritual. So again, you know, having a bath before bedtime it's about processes. It's about having a routine, helping the body temperature drop, so that your body starts to prepare for sleep and welcome it.
1: Yeah, we've, someone has got in touch here to say I work no regular shift pattern, days and nights. The roster is all over the place. So I guess that person's going to find find it very difficult to have a you know a, a situation where they're going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same yes, time. It's
10: very difficult. People on shift work because you're challenging your natural biological rhythm all of the time. Now, again, there are a few things that you can do to try and preserve your sleep. We touched on it briefly about maybe sleeping in two parts. But even if you're coming off a night shift, I often recommend that you just wear sunglasses on the way home so that you're not exposing yourself to the bright light, and you're trying to not fool your brain and body, but trying to help it to be easier to go to sleep. But most certainly, for people who are working irregular hours, it is you know they are more vulnerable. Let's say.
1: What about these people like Margaret Thatcher who say they only have to sleep about three or four hours a night?
10: Well, is that actually, is that true, or are they just in, kind of yeah. anomalies? So the the neuroscientist you mentioned, Matthew Walker, you know, he mentions uh, Margaret Thatcher in in a recent article because it's not doesn't shouldn't go unnoticed that I think that she had um, dementia, or Alzheimer's, um, and that really he suggests that there is. No percentage of people that need those real minimum amounts. Now, historically, I would have been saying 1% of the population flies underneath
2: that Mm. radar.
10: But actually, he is saying from extensive studies and works that actually everybody needs to get um, more sleep. And that often it is, you know, like a sliding door is that you don't actually know how you would be. If you were indeed getting enough sleep.
1: What about people then who will be listening and think, look, I just can't get any more sleep than that. Like at what stage, uh, you know, are they kind of crossing the line into someone who's actually suffering from insomnia?
10: Yeah. And I suppose for sleep, I would always try to encourage people to work on it. But it's not an immediate quick fix. I would always equate it a bit like fitness regime or healthy eating plan that you would spend time working on it. it's not going to happen immediately for you. But if you begin making some lifestyle changes, like even cutting out caffeine as the day unfolds and not having alcohol the hour or two before bedtime or at all, if you can help it. You know, having a relatively...
1: Drink your wine in the morning, I hear you.
10: Well, you know, the the problem with alcohol before bedtime is that it often is used as a bit of a sedative and it can help you go to sleep relatively easily. But unfortunately, it acts as a stimulant. It courses through your, your system and actually, can cause you to wake up more frequently, or indeed have that lesser quality of sleep.
1: Ac- so, y- yeah, you talk about sedatives there. What about like I- if you take sleeping tablets to go to sleep? Is that is the sleep is the quality of sleep just as good?
10: Um, well, again, it's not a long term strategy, and the studies tend to support that. You know, overuse or a long term use of those type of sleep aids are con- are contributing to a degradation of your sleep. So generally, you're looking for improving your sleep practices in what I would describe as being a natural or organic way. Now, again, like I said earlier, it's not going to happen immediately or overnight if you like, but you can steadily work on it. And even working through, you know, ways of helping your body to self-regulate and calm, you know, practicing perhaps mindfulness or visualization it will take you time to get good at that and for it to have it as a, it's a, it's a positive impact. But if we commit to it, and even where sleep is concerned, that I would always encourage people to commit to at least the seven or eight hours. You know, if you need to get up at 6 a.m. in the morning, you need to do the backward math so that you're going to get at least the chance of sleeping recommended
1: minimal amount. Uh, that someone has got in touch here uh, and that whenever we talk about sleep uh, parents get in touch parents of young children particularly um, uh, and this new mum has got in touch and it's an interesting question because it's not actually about the children. She's making the point that she used to be a great sleeper uh, she never woke up through the night but then she had a baby she got used to the baby waking through the night the baby now sleeps but she can't and I suppose kind of we've noticed that at home ourselves we're kind of very light sleepers now That, and mm. even when the kids sleep through the night if there's any bit of noise, the two of us kind of bolt upright in the bed and we think, was that her, was that him? Yeah, um, I know. Is, is that a normal thing that, I suppose, I actually, l- like I the baby see, sleeping, yeah. you'll just get through it?
10: I really feel that, obviously, as parents, we do find, and I work with parents all of the time, that's what I do, um, that we, often we help the child to learn to sleep and then we're still awake yeah. and we almost need to retrain our own bodies. However, I also feel that as a parent in those early years, we are almost designed to be on high alert, that it is, we are aware of our surroundings in a, in a way that we never would have been before. And I found as myself as a parent that as my own children have become older, my deeper sleep is back again now that they're older and potentially don't need me to be on that high alert for you. So I think also it's nature coming into play here too.
1: All right. Well, Lucy Wolf is a sleep consultant and a trainer with Sleepworks Therapy and SleepMatters.ie. Lucy, thanks very much for speaking to us. That is all we have time for on High Noon today. Kira Kelly will be back tomorrow.